Hollow Cult, we all know that the internet is not a safe place, especially when you're in our line of work. We're constantly looking up nefarious conspiracies, putting out FOIA requests, looking into dropped FBI files. That's why we here in the Hollow Layer trust our ISP to express VPN. I know most of you are probably thinking, why don't you just use incognito mode? Well, let me tell you something. Incognito mode does not hide your activity. It doesn't matter what mode you use or how many times you clear your browsing history. Your internet service provider can still see every single website you've ever visited. That's why even when we're at home, we never go online without using ExpressVPN. That's right. We don't need any more of our information floating around out there. ExpressVPN is an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers so your ISP can't be seen with any of the sites you visit. ExpressVPN also keeps all your information secure by encrypting it 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption out there. ExpressVPN is also available on all of your devices, phones, computers, tablets, even your smart TVs. So there's no excuse as to why you should not be using something like this when it comes to protecting yourself and protecting your data. Protect your online activity today with the VPN rated number one by CNET and Mashable. Visit our exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash hollow one, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash H-O-L-O-1, expressvpn.com slash hollow one to learn more. the hollow sky podcast we are your hosts i'm steven and kyle and we took a little bit of time off kyle traveled the country i traveled the depths of being sick the entire time he was gone so it's pretty sick yeah that literally sounds about right and figuratively um it's april 1st so i was gonna do a funny haha april fool's intro where we say we're quitting the podcast and then at the end i was gonna say psych but since this won't drop on the first, kind of defeats the purpose. <laughs> April Fools. Got you. <laughs> uh, I think today I'm going to bang out another 40 and 50. Hell yeah. So that should be pretty cool. I got some cool stories here. But before we do that, we got to get through all the business. 
So check us out at all our social medias, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, TikTok, Reddit, Discord. Search up the Hollow Sky Podcast. Come and be part of the Hollow Cult because you already know you want to. If you have a personal encounter that you would like to share for a future episode, Kyle's got some information that you might want. You can call the Holophone, which is going to be 1618-556-0837. You can uh, leave a voicemail. You can text it and have a conversation with us there. Uh, you can also record your story with the Voice Memo app on your smartphones. Shoot it over to the email. You can also just write your story out and shoot it to the email, which is going to be holoskypodcast at gmail.com. Just about any way that you can... Get us your story. We will try to get it out there for everyone to see and hear. Uh, it'll probably go on the website as well, which the website is just about done. I got a few more kinks to work out, but it'll be, it should be up and launched in the near future. Luckily, we don't kink shame here. Touche. Touche. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting excited about the uh, website. We will also have a web store going live before too long. So you can get all of your hollow merch that you've all been asking for. If you'd like to support the show, there's plenty of ways to do it. We have a Patreon. You can go over there and check that out, see if there's anything that interests you there. We have a Venmo where you can pop some monster money in to fuel our caffeine addictions. Um, you can tell all of your friends that listen to podcasts about the show. That's the best thing you can do. Share the show everywhere. Social media, word of mouth, just send smoke signals, whatever you have to do, just to keep the hollow cult growing, keep the global show growing. domination. That's what we're going for. S just slow and steady global domination. That's right. Keep the hollow machine running. It's kind of like pinky in the brain. Yeah. Yeah. I'm down with it. Yeah. That could be a new hollow cult sticker. Anyway. No copyright infringement, of course. Right. <laughs> <laughs> another another way you can support us is go to wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. When I find them, I will shout you out. And if I haven't up to this point, that means I probably haven't found it. So bear with me. Today's five-star rating and review comes to us from our friend CMA210. CMA says, great show, five stars. When the inevitable... Oh, wow. Wow, let's try this again. When the inevitable alien invasion or zombie apocalypse happens, I hope Kyle and Steve start a live stream and give us a news desk style play-by-play -play until it all goes dark. I love uh, it. I think we could do that for you. That would be awesome. <laughs> that would be terrible. That would be, yeah, I, I don't. And awesome. I don't want that ending, but the thought of us doing that would be pretty fucking epic. We're just like the sole source of information. Oh, just, dude absolute end-of-the-world scenario. That would be great. It would be fantastic. <laughs> Aside from it actually being the end yeah, of the world. Like aliens busting down the back of the recording room. Oh, that would be so awesome. <laughs> Just a blaze of glory. It will, yeah. that's yeah. At that point, that's the only way to go. Yeah. Yeah. Because you know you and me are out. I, we're not out running shit, so. Oh, hell no. If I'm running, you know there's something absolutely awful behind me <laughs> something hungry something dangerous yeah i'm just probably just... not gonna run yeah me either 
just going to stand and try to go toe-to-toe with whatever it is and meet my demise. It's whatever. It's whatever. Yeah. But yeah. that being said, we are... Oh, yeah. Thanks, CMA, for leaving us a five-star rating and review. We really appreciate it, and it definitely helps push us up uh, through the sea of podcasts on all platforms, especially Apple. The more the more five stars we get, the more we're kind of put out there to the masses, so it definitely helps out. From there, we're moving on to our listener experience of the day. This comes to us from our friend Jay, and Jay is going to tell us about their thoughts on Egress and the Bledsoe Encounters. Okay, so I called the holophone, and I thought I was recording, and then at the end it goes, goodbye, and I was like, did I really just talk for nothing? Anyway, hello, holo guys, and holo girls, and the cult following. Um, I just finished your episode you put out on January 16th. I'm a little bit behind. Um, I'll get to that in a second, but you guys were talking about egress, and just out of curiosity, I googled just, you know, egress, and I'm sure you or at least a few of the people in the Discord have already seen this, but the definition of egress is uh, to move, to leave a place, departure. Um, Another word that was uh, listed as synonymous was exodus, which I'm not taking in a a biblical way, but just the core meaning of the word itself. Um, It being departure was kind of interesting, and that kind of gave me Escape the Matrix woo-woo vibes, or just escape in general. Um... I don't know how far anyone's looked into this, but, like, I kind of want to do some digging on my own. But, uh, yeah, that was, that was pretty, it it piqued my interest for sure. Um, second, uh, you mentioned in passing, and I know you've mentioned him before, and you guys are actually the reason why I looked in, I've begun looking into him and listening to his son's podcast, um, but Chris Bledsoe. Um, if you didn't know, which I think you do, because I swear to God they've mentioned you before. Um, it's Blood So Said So podcast. Phenomenal, which is a reason why I'm so behind, because I low-key have been, uh, binging that entire podcast. Uh, it's incredible. Um, his dad wrote a book that just came out last month, uh, called UFO of God. And I know the title sounds ridiculous. It makes it sound ridiculous. However, UFO is the only... It's the only word that he could really use. Because it's not... There's nothing else to describe what he he and his entire family experienced. Um, A lot of people think he's a kook or a crackpot. I 100% believe this man is genuine. I believe that he saw what he saw. Now is what he saw authentic? As in, is it being honest? Who knows? I'm inclined to believe yes. But I believe that he believes what he saw was exactly as it was. Um, If you guys haven't really looked into him that much, I implore you to do so. It is absolutely incredible. It's changed my entire perception on the world. Um, 
obviously this world is far more mystical than we could ever hope to even understand. Um, sorry, my ADHD brain is going off, but now that I think about it, it might have been the, the Bledsoe said so that mentioned you guys, but I think I'm confusing it with the uh, shout-out Tony Merkel, the confessionals. Um, I also binge the shit out of him, too. So, I'm all wrapped up in this kooky, woo-woo shit. And y'all are just the icing on the cake. But, yeah. Uh, Egress, in and of itself, means departure. That's interesting. And Chris Bledsoe is... <sighs> indescribable. Very, very genuine man. Very, very kind. Um... And once again, if you have not read his book, please, please do it. The first four chapters are about, you know, his life growing up with his father, uh, doing construction in his very small Pentecostal, I believe, town. Um, he was a deacon in the church, all that. After the fourth chapter is when the experiences start happening, and it, it blew me out of the water. So it's a slow burn, but it's well worth it. Um, anyway, I, now that I'm caught up with, uh, all my other woo-woo podcasts, sorry, (laughs) I am going to try to catch up to the current episodes with y'all, because I love listening to you guys. You guys are awesome. Um, sorry this is so long. I'm driving and I'm rambling, but I had to just word vomit everything at once, or I just wasn't going to do it at all. Uh, I was in the Discord for a little bit. I mean, I'm still, like, you know, in it. I didn't leave it. My work schedule is so fucked that I just don't have time. I don't have the time to commit to being as active as I would like to be. Like, I would love to be in there 24-7, and it sucks because it's, like, shit, you know? I wake up at 3 a.m., and I get home at, what time? Five, like, 5.30 p.m. But, uh... I will do my best to be a little bit more active in there, because y'all are kind of my people. And, like, none of the people I know are eh, quite as unique as you guys are. So it's nice to find people that are, you know, in the, into the same stuff. Anyway, I'm, I'm rambling. Um, but, yeah, just, you know, food for thought. If you listen, thanks. You ain't gotta play this on the show. If you want to, you can. It's long as shit. I just wanted you guys to hear the information that you may have already heard, but that I wanted to present you with. So, uh, thanks for listening. Deuces. Jay, thank you so much for taking the time to call in and share your thoughts on um, Egress and Bledsoe and all that goodness. Uh, yeah, it has definitely been pondered over and brought to our attention about the different meanings of egress. Uh, that whole, whole encounter is just, I don't even know. I hate the way that it ended if it is done and it's kind of depressing. I know the number tied to the flyer is now, it's not defunct, but it's not tied to uh, that entity anymore. As I mentioned before, me and Kyle tried to call it on the way home from Crypticon, and 
it had been linked to another user now. So I don't know if those two users are like linked together, but I probably wouldn't count on it there. Yeah. Or call them. (laughs) Yeah. Because that number's gotten pretty popular. Yeah. And, you know, as as far as the Bledsoe case goes, you're right. It is a very unique case. I mean, we did, I don't know if you know or not, we did cover it. It's like a four-parter that we did. It is a very long story, but it's a very fascinating story. Uh, There's a lot of different ups and downs with it. Um, You know, and, and like Steve said with Egress, we did... Uh, did look into the name itself, and it does it does give you a very matrix feel, like like you're exiting some type of state, whether it's the simulation, the consciousness, or or whatever. But both both episodes have been really fun, um, very thought provoking in many ways. And I know I've said it multiple times before, but we do plan on putting together like the entire Egress timeline. We just haven't had a chance to actually sit down and map it out. Everything's been pretty crazy here since the beginning of the year, but we're we're getting ahead of things slowly. So we should be good to go with all the business side of the podcast and putting together a new website and all the LLC business and all that stuff. We should be, knock on wood, winding down on these things taken away from like being able to research yeah really focus on creating content again yeah and once like steve said once the business side's done and taken care of then we get to refocus on everything and really start it becomes fun again yeah working on the fun (laughs) side of all of it because you know business is business and we don't want we don't want to consume ourselves with that that's just not fun we got to be able to prep for the end of the world Exactly. You know? Exactly. Keep chasing the weird stories and and just having the time of our lives, really. Yep. Yep. But, Jay, thanks so much for submitting. Um, we're glad that you're part of the Hollow Cult and uh, definitely hop back into the Discord. It is a pretty, pretty good community over there. Yeah. Not everybody thinks alike. Not everybody agrees, but everybody gets along, and that's exactly how it should be. It is amazing how patient and understanding everybody is in there. It's very, it's, you don't see it very often, to no. be honest. All right. So I decided to go ahead and pull the trigger on another 40 and 50. And as I said before, I'm going in alphabetical order. So today we're jumping into that gigantic state up north, Alaska. I found a bunch of interesting stories here, and I just want to get it out of the way before everybody starts jumping down my throat. I'm not doing, like, the big ones, like the Alaskan Triangle or Vortex. That could be a show on its own. Uh, Mount Hayes UFO Base, that could be a show on its own. Harp Facility, that can be a show on its own. I do have some bigger uh, encounters in this one I put together today, but, like, those main ones, you aren't going to hear, so you're probably going to be sad, but whatever. I think it'd be all right. Yeah. I want to hear about, because like you said, those ones, you, we can do episodes on themselves. So yeah, they're, they're whole episodes by themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're going to start off with one of my favorite things ever in the Fordian world, and that's shit falling from the sky. That is so bizarre. Because. There's been a, like a recent pop of it, up of it too, which yeah. is, makes it even weirder. Yeah. I posted it on the old uh, TikTok. There was like 
Were there worms eels, somewhere? Yeah. The worms falling somewhere, eels falling somewhere. It was it was bizarre, but that was a good lead into this. So uh this is from the Daily Beast.com. Vampires falling from the sky. What? Not as cool as you think it is, but still cool. Oh. <laughs> I was about to be taken that back. That was that was my uh what is it? Clickbait. I was going to say, title. that's how you read it. <laughs> Vampires falling from the sky. Got a bunch of sparkly twilights falling <laughs> down here. So on a summer day in June 2019, an Arctic lamprey fell from the sky right into the parking lot of a value village outside of Fairbanks, Alaska. It was alive. Lampre- lampreys, wow. Lampreys are a parasitic fish. They look like eels and have circular mouths filled with sharp teeth that they use to leech onto larger fish to suck their blood. They've been given the nickname of vampire fish. Have you ever seen one of them? I think so, yeah. Yeah, they're not. That X-File episode where the guy's got the... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. That's exactly gotcha. it. Gotcha. So soon after the first lamprey fell from the sky, the Alaskan Department of Fish and Game began receiving other calls about more vampire fish dropping from above, one falling right into a man's front yard. Lampreys, as I said, are pretty horrifying. Aside from their razor-sharp teeth, they also are anadromous. I know I'm butchering that, and I don't know why. Andromedus? Not quite. Anadromous. Anadromous? Whatever. Same thing. Anadromous. Meaning they can live in freshwater and saltwater. Somebody is going to correct me on that because that's what people do. okay. So that makes it even worse because they can just be in any water. That is weird because then they they can just migrate to wherever they fell. Yeah. The Alaska Department of Fish and Game quickly jumped on Facebook and put out the explanation that... It was just simply seagulls dropping the creature onto the ground after swooping them up from the ocean. That makes sense. They're just eating a snack, right? right? Yeah. Makes sense. I even put that, which makes pretty decent sense. Until you figure that Fairbanks is almost 350 miles from the ocean. He was just saving it for later. Could be. Could be. So there are some freshwater and at this water point, systems there. At this point, are we still talking about one that there's they found? Mul- no, there's multiple. Okay. Multiple. That's what so, I was going to say. That's where it's going to get weird. So you... Like a whole, what, a giant flock of uh, seagulls apparently just found a giant school of these vampire fish. Carried them 350 miles. Right, yeah. And you know what else is weird? Not to cut you off here, but you brought this up, and I find it very bizarre. That you said flock of seagulls, and I have a similar haircut to... A seagull? People from people in the band flock of seagulls. Hey, there you go. <laughs> that is weird. That is another anomaly. Synchronicities abound. In this conversation already, but... It seems to be a lot of things that fall from the sky tend to either come from the water or they have an amphibian background or they are like like worms and eels. They they have the same similar structure. Yeah, gross. <laughs> they are gross. <laughs> but it's just it, it's it adds to the weirdness of it in my opinion because it just m- makes it come from almost like it'd be, it'd, don't get me wrong, it would be bizarre to see a bunch of chimpanzees start falling from the sky. <laughs> right, it would. I that would be awful it if there was a awful. gorilla fall, and you just have a bunch of pissed off giant silverback gorillas running around. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. just irate because they just fell from the sky. Right. So it's it's I don't know. It's weird. It, it would suck though to have a bunch of fire ants fall from the sky. You know what I'm saying? Like that sucks too. It'd suck to have a bunch of fucking Honda Civics fall from the sky. <laughs> That would suck. <laughs> it would be awful. That would suck. So, 
basically, they're going to chalk it up to the seagulls carrying them in because there are freshwater uh, waterways there, which lamp- lampreys can live in. Do they live in flocks? Or not flocks. <laughs> <laughs> schools and schools, though. Do they- I don't know. Right on. Probably. Maybe. I don't know. Because that would suck. Imagine being a, a, a an animal and then swimming through a school of those fucking things. Yeah, they just leech on. They said Yeah. They said that's how they stay warm. They'll leech on to bigger fish and use the body heat to stay warm. Or just be smart and move to a different area in the yeah. ocean. But hey, that's you know, whatever. So uh I came up with one theory outside of the Department of Fishing Game, which is I'm fairly certain that the seagulls and the lampreys coordinated attack on the people of Fairbanks. Paratroopers dropped from the seagulls. I mean, to attack. realistically, that probably makes the most sense. Yeah. It was a valiant attempt, but it seemed to, you know, bear no results. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that one was kind of fun. The next one is a long one that I'm going to get into here, but um, it's interesting. And that is the Japanese airline cargo flight of 1628. There was a UFO incident that occurred on November 17, 1986, involving a Japanese Boeing 747 cargo aircraft. The aircraft was en route from Paris, uh, Narita International Airport near Tokyo. Oh, from Paris to Narita International Airport near Tokyo with a cargo of wine. On the way to the anchored section of the flight at about 1711 over eastern Alaska, the crew first witnessed two unidentified objects to their left. These abruptly rose from below and closed in to escort their craft. So it was, I know, the way I'm picturing it is almost like a military escort, but right, I didn't yeah, know what the hell they were. For sure. Each had two rectangular arrays of what seemed to be glowing nozzles or thrusters though their bodies remained obscured by the darkness. So it was just like, they, I saw an illustration, and it almost looked like stadium lights, where you have them, and they have all these, like, ten rows of ten lights in, like, a square. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> uh, when, the clo- or when closest, the aircraft's cabin lit up, and the captain could feel the heat on his face from whatever propulsion uh, engines these things had. The two craft departed before a third, much larger disc object started trailing them. Anchorage Air Traffic Control requested oncoming airline United Airlines flight to confirm the unidentified traffic, but when it and military craft signaled to flight 1628, no other craft could be distinguished. The sighting lasted 50 minutes and ended in the vicinity of Denali. So to get into more detail here, um, we're going to go into the uh, objects that they had seen. This was a routine cargo flight uh, cruising at about 600 and, or 565 miles an hour and an altitude of about 35,000 feet when Anchorage Air Traffic Control advised new light heading toward Talkeetna. So the air traffic controller also saw something on their radar. The two objects, uh, illustrations of the first two objects based on Captain uh, Tara Uchi's drawings and descriptions, they were shooting off lights. They were square in shape and some 500 to 1,000 feet in front of the cockpit, but some were at a higher altitude. As soon as Flight 1628 straightened out of its turn at 1711, 
the captain noticed two aircraft to his far left and some 2,000 feet below his altitude, which he assumed to be military or aircraft. These were pacing his flight path and his speed. A few minutes later, the two objects abruptly veered to a position about 500 feet or 1,000 feet in front of the aircraft, assuming a stacked configuration. In doing so, he reported that they activated, quote, a kind of reversed thrust and their lights became dazzlingly, dazzlingly bright. To match the speed of the aircraft from their sideways approach, the objects displayed what the captain described as a disregard for inertia. Quote, the thing was flying as if there was no such thing as gravity. It sped up and then stopped, then flew at our speed, then in our direction. So to us, it appeared that they were standing still right next to us. The next instant, it changed its course. In other words, the flying object had overcome gravity. The reverse thrust caused a bright flare for three to seven seconds to the, to the extent that the captain could feel the warmth of their glow. Uh, a few minutes later, the pilots notified air traffic control, which could not confirm any traffic in the indicated position. After three to five minutes, the object assumed a side-to-side -side configuration, which they maintained for another 10 minutes. They accompanied the aircraft with an undulating motion and some back-and-forth rotation of the jet nozzles, which seemed to be under automatic control, causing them to flare with brighter and duller luminosity. Each object had a square shape consisting of two rectangular arrays of what appeared to be glowing nozzles or thrusters. Separated by a dark central section, the captain speculated in his drawings that the objects would appear cylindrical if viewed from another angle and that they observed the movement of the nozzles could be described as the cylinder's rotation. The object left, the object left abruptly, abruptly at uh, 523, moving to a point below the horizon out of the east. At this point, when the first objects disappeared, the captain now noticed a pale band of light that mirrored their altitude, speed, and direction. Setting on their onboard radar scope to a 25 nautical mile range, he confirmed an object in the expected 10 o'clock direction at about 7.5 nautical miles distance. So now this the big craft, the third craft, is on his radar. He does see it. He informed air traffic control of its presence. Anchorage found nothing on their radar, but Elmdorf's NORAD Regional Operations Control Center, directly in this flight path, reported a surge primary return after a few minutes. So I'm not exactly sure what that means, but I'm going to say that they did notice something that wasn't normal on their radar. Right. <clears throat> As the city lights of Fairbanks began to illuminate the object, the captain believed to perceive that the outline of a gigantic spaceship was on his port side that was twice the size of an aircraft carrier. It was, however, outside of, the f of his first officer's field of view. So there was three people in the cockpit that noticed the first two UFOs. But as of this third one, it said, uh, I'm assuming his co-pilot did not see it. The object followed in formation or in the same relative position through the 45-degree turn into a descent from 35,000 feet to 31,000 feet, and then a 360-degree turn back in the other direction. The short-range radar at Fairbanks Airport failed, however, to even register the object. Anchorage Air Traffic Control offered military intervention, which was declined by the pilot due to his knowledge of other UFO incidents. The object was not noted by either of the two planes which approached 
flight 1628 to confirm his presence, by which time 1628 had also lost sight of it. 1628 arrived safely at Anchorage. So all this information I'm getting from Wikipedia because it was the probably the most put together that I found. There was some aftermath after the incident. The captain cited in the official Federal Aviation Administration report that the object was, in fact, a UFO. In December 1986, the captain gave an interview to two news journal journalists. Uh, the JAL soon grounded him. So the Japanese airlines soon grounded it from or grounded him from flying for talking to the press about the UFO and put him in a desk job. He was reinstated as a pilot several years later and eventually retired in Japan. The Kyoto News uh, contacted Paul Stuckey, the FAA public information officer in Anchorage on December 24th and received confirmation of the incident followed up by the UPI on the 29th. The FAA's Alaskan region consulted John Callahan, the FAA division chief of accidents and investigations branch, as they wanted to know what to tell the media about the UFO incident. Callahan was unaware of any such incident, considering it a likely early flight test of the stealth bomber, which was then in development in uh, 86. He asked the Alaskan region to forward the data to their technical center in Atlantic City, New Jersey, where he and his superior played back the radar data and tied it in with the voice tape playbacks by videotaping the concurrent playbacks. So they did have radar data matching up with the communication between the air traffic control center. A day later at FAA headquarters... They briefed the Vice Admiral Donald D. Ingen, who watched the whole video over half an hour and asked them not to talk to anybody until they were given the okay and to prepare an encompassing presentation of the data for a group of government officials by the next day. The meeting was attended by representatives of the FBI, the CIA, President Reagan's scientific study team, among others. Upon completion of the presentation, all were told that the incident was secret and that their meeting never took place. According to Callahan, the officials considered the data to represent the first instance of a recorded radar data on UFO. They took, posi or took possession of all the presented data. Callahan, however, managed to retain the original video, the pilot's report, and the FAA's first report in his office. Holocult, summer is here. So you know what that means. Paranormal investigations and cryptid hunts abound. But before you do that, you're going to need some good clothing. So we're excited to announce another month partnering with Tecovis. I feel like at this point, it's it's mandatory to have amazing clothes while you're out crypto chasing or ghost hunting. Because with Tecovis, every boot you can expect handmade quality, first wear comfort, and timeless Western style. And nothing says like you're there for business like walking in in a pair of snakeskin boots. And with it being summer, like Steve said, they also have some sweet short sleeve moisture wickening pearl snaps that are definitely going to put you on the next level. And if you need to carry some stuff, like all your, your ghost hunting gear, you can use their ever-growing lineup of rugged and full-grain leather bags that are always going to get you where you need to be. And to keep cool... They also have men's and women's straw hats. So you're definitely going to want to check them out. That's perfect for keeping the sun off your head and getting getting sunburn up there. 
The best way to shop for boots is at your local Tacova stores, where you'll be greeted by the smell of fresh leather and a friendly smile. Come on in, grab a cold one, get fitted by a pro, and shop all the latest styles. I personally am waiting for the cryptid lineup, where I can get me a pair of like Loveland Frogman skin boots, maybe some Loch Ness oh, Monster. Oh, yeah. Imagine that Loch Ness boot. Smooth. Smooth. But until then, you can visit Tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S dot com. And don't go gently, y'all. The forgotten target and printouts of computer data were also rediscovered from which all targets can be reproduced that were in the sky at the time. After three months' investigation, the FAA formally released their results at a press conference held on March 5th, 1987. Here, Paul Stuckey retracted earlier FAA suggestions that the controllers confirmed a UFO and described it as a simply a split radar image which appeared at some very unfortunate timing. <laughs> There's a lot of weird things in this story here. Yeah. Um, makes you wonder if the UFOs were just trying to party. Because it was the, the plane was full of wine, right? That's true. And they're out there like... That is true. They're either driving drunk... Or they're just showing that, hey, we're here for a good time. Which brings me to my next point. It is so bizarre when you listen to these these UFO cases with planes because it seems like a lot of the UFOs do. And it happens in a lot of sightings regardless. They, they do all these fancy fucking maneuvers, right? That It's like it's, it's almost like they're showboating. Like, hey, look what we can do. Yeah, we're, we are this much better than you. Right. And it's, it's, just, it's really bizarre when you sit and think about it. Another thing that's interesting is how the guy says he can when they when they they hit their thrusters or whatever the hell goes on there, um, he can feel the heat off of it. There's only one other source that I know that can do something like that, and that's the sun, right? Because I've never you know, been in a car or whatever and had uh, a street light or a barge light or, or anything light related, go, go through your glass yeah. and feel anything other than the sun. The sun is the only thing that I can think of. It would, it would almost like what he's referring, it would almost have to be some sort of like combustion engine you would think. Yeah. But wouldn't you think if it, if it's capable uh, of putting off yeah. that kind of heat that it would affect the window in some way. Because think about it. Imagine, A, not only because of the region that it's in, but even the altitude that it's at. It's going to make that glass and that the outside of that plane. It should be really cold, right? Yeah. yeah. And then you add the Alaska temperatures on top of that. So that's going to make it even colder. And I know a lot of times whenever you put that that type of stress on certain materials, not, not to say that, I mean, I'm sure... Um, airplane windows are designed to handle these types of situations, but it, it's got to be at least a scary afterthought. You know, like, shit, if it's putting off that much heat, like, what what could it do to to yeah. be with the cold and the stress and, and all that stuff? Like, imagine if it would have busted out them windows. Yeah, that would have been terrible. That would have been terrible. Uh, the sighting received special attention from the media, considering it was the supposed first interest of interest let me try this again. The first instance of tracking UFOs on both ground and airborne radar while being observed by experienced airline pilots. Uh, this prompted 
looking into another incident because that press investigation took place on March 5th, 1987. At this press conference when they were doing it, another pilot came forward in what's known as the McGrath incident. That's this just a year later. Alaska Airlines Flight 53. Well, hang on. One more one more thing yeah. before we get too far away from the original story there. Yeah, sure um, it's funny. Remember military Bigfoot guy? Yeah. It, he, he hit it on the head. He's like, because remember he was like, and we weren't going to talk about seeing a UFO. Yep. And That's I asked it. why, and he's like, because they, you know, to ruin your career. And with the original pilot, what happened to him? They yep. ended up desking him. So I, I mean, he hit the nail on the head. Yeah, and like, like there were some big, big people in that meeting looking over that right. uh, that evidence. The FBI, right. the CIA, Reagan's personal investigative team. Like that's scientific study team. That's that's a big that's deal. Big deals. And they're the first thing that they say after reviewing it is this never took place. Tell me, dude. Tell that, me that would be awesome. That that's not something. Tell me, if it, tell if me that's it, not cool as fuck. Yeah, if it wasn't something, they'd just be like, hey, just an anomaly. Yeah. Instead, they're like, shut up. It didn't happen. I I would love to be in a conversation or have seen something and then somebody be like, this never happened. So I'd be like, oh, like, <laughs> Damn. we just we just see it. Like, that's real. We just seen it. God, did we just sign an NDA without signing an NDA? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this, this leads, that press conference leads to this this next encounter, which is quite a bit shorter, but it is kind of tied together. So Alaska Airlines Flight 53. On January 29th, 1987, at 6.40 p.m., Alaska Airlines Flight 53 observed a fast-moving object uh, on their onboard weather radar. While at 35,000 feet, some 60 miles west of McGrath, on a flight from Nome to Anchorage, the radar registered a strong target in their 12 o'clock position at 25 miles of range. While they could not distinguish any object or light visually, they noticed that the radar object was increasing its distance at a very high rate of speed. With every sweep of the radar about one second apart, the object added five miles to its distance, translating to a speed of 18,000 miles per hour. The pilot, however, relayed a speed of a mile a second to the control tower or a speed of 3,600 miles per hour but confirmed that the target exceeded both 50 and 100-mile ranges of their radar scope in a matter of seconds. The object was outside of the radar range of the Anchorage air traffic control, and additional radar data covering the specific time and location failed to substantiate the pilot's claim. So here, within almost within the same time period in a similar area, you have almost the same thing going on, witnessing more aircraft essentially doing maneuvers and speeds that are outside of what we normally consider like this, those Boeings travel at 500 miles an hour, but they're seeing this thing travel at 18,000 miles an hour. That's fucking, that's well, that's a like, big that, deal. That's like, yeah, that's almost unimaginable. Yeah. It's, you know, if, if it has the capability of moving that fast, I mean, that's like, that's not even real within, you know, our realm of, yeah. Yeah. Of thinking it's unfa- Yeah, it's un- unfathomable. Right. Moving that fast. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a huge gap. That's not 500 and 1,800. 18,000. Know, that's what I mean. Like, the, yeah. That's, oh, yeah, yeah. It's not even that. Like, yeah. And even that is a massive, massive difference. Yeah. Right? And that's on an extremely small scale. But then you go from 500 to 18,000. That's a... That's a 
different different ball game you're playing there. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. It, I don't know. I just couldn't imagine. It's it was interesting. Definitely look it up. Uh, look up the Wikipedia where I got all the information from. Uh, they have the uh, captain's drawings of what he saw, and they. I mean, the the two main craft look like the only thing I can like stadium lights. Essentially, like ballpark lights. That's so weird. And then the size of the one he said yeah. that it was the size of an aircraft carrier. And he drew that one as like like almost like this almond shaped sphere with with a strange light right around, like like dissecting it halfway halfway right around its uh, diameter. It's it's pretty interesting. I just I just like that story because of the way it was handled by the up and ups. Like it is classic. UFO cover-up. Yeah, bullshit. it's awesome. It is awesome. So, from there, we are going to jump into uh, cryptid, I guess, you could say. Good. Alaska's interesting in that it has so much deep-rooted folklore with uh, the native people there. There are so many interesting creatures in the folklore that as you dig it's hard to dig out any that kind of have uh, evidence kind of in our time span right so i kind of separated them a little bit and picked picked them out just digging into the lore is awesome but this one this one is also awesome. <laughs> it, takes, <laughs> it takes a real weird turn to the end. Let All me tell right, you. let's do this. So I apologize if I butcher any of these names because I'm not good at reading. So we're jumping into the Kushtaka, which is the Otter Man. It's a creature that's steeped deep in the folklore of the Tlingit people. The the Kushtaka are shapeshifters capable of assuming human form, the form of an otter, and potentially other forms. In some accounts, the Kushtaka is able to assume the form of any species of otters. In other lore, they can only assume the species of one. I'm already floored. (laughs) Fucking otter man, bro. (laughs) Like, what the fuck? (laughs) Like, if... if, So are they selling it as an all-encompassing shapeshifter? Shape shifter that enjoys being an otter. So like otters, like it's number one pick. Yeah, but it can. So like, I can do anything. It's just I fuck with otters. But it. I mean, because otters are cool. Yeah, they're assholes too. So I don't know if it's maybe different entities, because I mean, like this one's almost tied specifically to otters. I mean, that's why it's right. The otter, otter man. man, but. You kind of come across accounts where it can be anything. Because at first I was going to be like, well, it's, it's totally like the djinn or the skinwalker, you know, the these things that have the more, probably more so like the djinn than the skinwalker. Because the skinwalker seems to have human uh, origin, more or less, right? Yeah. Uh, whereas the otter man... is the I mean, it's the yeah. fucking otter man. Yeah, like, the, what am I... I don't even know where I'm going. I don't even know where I'm going. It's, it's the Otter Man. So 
in the lore, their behavior kind of conflicts with one another because you hear different aspects. In some, you hear that they are super helpful and friendly. They are f- they frequently save people that are lost in the tundra from freezing to death, and uh, they'll save lost individuals by distracting them uh, from like thinking about the cold by showing them illusions of their family and friends to lead them back to where they need to get. That's totally like very Jenny. And essentially helping them survive the cold. However, they also use the same, the same, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The same illusions to trick tinglet sailors to their desk, to their deaths, lead them out into the lakes and then sink their boats uh, lead people out into the forest to where they freeze to death. So you kind of get, I don't it's know if there's weird. different factions Which, or what. It's so funny. Of Ottermen. It's so weird. <laughs> <laughs> like, because it makes, like, I, I definitely entertain the thought of there being different factions, but the fact that we are discussing different factions in Ottermen is very mm. uh, peculiar, to say the it least. It gets even worse. Like, it... It's it's so weird. It is almost like there's different factions, like, or almost like they're doing good things to good, get people to trust them. Yeah, it could be that they have a impeccable sense of character as well. I mean, like, it's, oh, Kyle's a good dude. I'm gonna I'm gonna make sure he doesn't freeze to death. Not to mention he hates the cold. And then they're like, oh, Steve's a fucking prick. I'm gonna Steve getting this John boat and. <laughs> Drive out here and then we sink you. I don't. I. I'll just go with this. Does it? Does it elaborate on their size at all? I'm gonna like guess just like straight up otter size. I'm gonna guess when it's the size of a man, it's probably the size of a man. But when it's the size of an otter, it's, it's like the size of an. Size. I didn't know if like it was more of like I a, don't know. Yeah, but that's where I'm going with it. So about about them being good to good people, I'm about to put that to bed okay. because. Uh, in some folklore, it's said the Katashka will imitate the cries of a baby or the screams of a woman to lure victims to the rivers to help the people who they think are in need. But when they get there, the Katashka either kills the person and tears them to shreds or will turn them into a Katashka, essentially trapping their souls and preventing them from reincarnation. Well, that's weird. <laughs> sucks. That does suck. You got to be an otter the rest of your life. Yeah, and if, if Man, they are kind of cool, like good people go to help people in need. So they're like, nah, time to become an aware otter because we're gonna attack you. That's true. I did watch a video of otter clans fighting the other day. I Pro- mean, proof. straight up, it showed they did the wall of death in the river. It's awesome. I'm not kidding at all. They're just they slow, right heavy metal music playing. Yeah, in the background. and then they just beat the shit out of each other. So there are ways you can ward off the Ottermen if you come to find yourself in Alaska. In Alaska, and um, so everybody, you know, write this stuff down because this yeah. is important. First and foremost, uh, copper. Copper seems to drive them away. Interesting. Uh, in some instances, fire also wards them off, but not all. Um, in others, urine. So, urine? Yeah. You just got to pee on them? Yeah, hell yeah. Just arm yourself with piss bottles and start throwing them <laughs> like a grenade. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. But one thing that carries across 
most all folklore is that they do not like dogs. Dogs are dogs will notice them first. Dogs will attack them. They do not want to interesting f with man's best friend. So, well, most of the people up there do like a lot of them have dogs. So, it is common in the folklore that Katashka prey on small children. Again, assholes. That sucks. It's been thought by some that uh, the lore was used by Tinglet mothers to keep their children from wandering close to the ocean and rivers themselves. It's also said that Katashka emit a high-pitched three-part whistle in the pattern of low, high, low. That's weird. Yeah. I wonder if I wonder how. What was the flutes? Remember we heard, remember the flutes yeah episode? Harrison and the flutes. Yeah, I wonder if that is similar. Harrison, if you're listening and you see otters uh, around your house, don't just pee on them. <laughs> just, just piss right on them. Okay. So in 2013, there was a bizarre rash of sightings throughout not just Alaska, but all over the north. The incidents were so intriguing that they caught the attention of Tiger Blood himself, Mr. Charlie Sheen. Thank God. Who put together a research team and flew to Alaska to search for the mythological creatures. What in the fuck would possess him to do that? I thought this was fake. Other than a giant bag of Coke. Which I'm sure had a part in all of this. Oh, I guarantee it. I thought this was not, this was just Wikipedia being Wikipedia. But then I searched it and I found us a TMZ article that... I will read to you now. Charlie Sheen mystery in Alaska. Quote, I'm hunting a half otter man. Here we go. Directly from TMZ. Barely a month after his Loch Ness monster mission failed. What? Charlie, Charlie's out here. Boots on the ground. Let's dog. go, buddy. Charlie Sheen is back on the hunt for crazy mythological creatures. This time in snowy, snowy Alaska. And if anybody knows anything about snow... It looks like Charlie knows snow. It's Charlie. Charlie tells TMZ he flew up to Sitka, Alaska on his own private jet last week in search of the mythic Kushtaka, which I probably said wrong earlier. But anyway, it loosely translates to Land Otter Man. Stories of the elusive Kushtaka originated among uh, the native tribes in southeastern Alaska. According to Charlie, it's, quote, a shape-shifting trickster who's half man, half otter. It lures one away from the campsite with mimic sounds of a crying baby, then kills you, takes on your form, and returns to the scene for more suckers. <laughs> Charlie says he embarked into the wilderness with some friends in order to, f- in order to find the creature, but just like his Nessie miss- mission, he returned empty-handed. Sheen has since flown back to civilization. Charlie tells us, quote... This is a quote to TMZ. It obviously knew our group was far too skilled to be snowed in this fashion, so it stayed hidden like a sissy. End quote. That sounds about right. That really happened. See that picture there? there it reminds me more of Bigfoot. Yeah, if Bigfoot was an otter. That doesn't look like an otter, though. Uh, it looks like Bigfoot. Well, what if otter was? what if you had an otter that uh, procreated with a man? Okay, well, that makes a little more sense. Or shapeshifted into a man. Tried to and failed. Yeah, it just looks like a big Bro, if you had, if you had coked out Charlie Sheen chasing you around, 
You wouldn't be able to shapeshift all at once. No, either. I agree. I agree. That would be terrifying. It would be a disaster. That would be terrifying. Oh, yeah. All right. I got two more on here, but I'll probably just pick one. Uh, let's go. Let me scroll through my list here. Uh, I really want to do this one because it's fucking weird. Let's do it. So I'm going to butcher this name. Okay. So I apologize. But this is another kind of folklorish creature that is prevalent in Alaska. They're called the Ersenrat. It's spelled I-R-R-C-E-N-R-R-A-A-T, Ersenrat. Is it a rat? But it's, they're essentially other than human persons. Okay, I'm interested now. In the Alaskan tundra lurks the Ersenrat which, according to the Yupik tradition, are small human-like creatures that enjoy causing mischief. They are said to be miniature, very crafty, and they exist in a dimension with the ability... Or they exist in a dimension that's not our own with the ability to appear and disappear as they please into our world. People who have encountered them have seen them hunting, fishing, and gathering the same way that we do. They are believed to disorient or disorientate and confuse unwary travelers before trapping them in their caves and underground layers, which is why they are often tied to missing time and even missing people. So when I was looking into this, I found a blog, the post highlight or a blog that highlights an email that went around rule Alaska in 2008. that supposedly describes an odd encounter with these beings. So this is posted on the church of ufology.sunshine.blogspot.com. Anyway, I will read the entire post here. That way everybody can get the whole feel of it. Um so the Inserac Inserat is a reoccurring theme in traditional Yupik teachings and legends. They're considered little people who dwell in the tundra, usually underground. They disorient, discomfort, and trap unweary humans. This email hit Bush, Alaska in May of 2008 from a hunter or a hunter from Marshall recounted how he found a boy allegedly who had been abducted by the Inserac. This blog says city folk usually dismiss Inserac as superstition. Those who have lived in Yupik country for any period of time tend to be a little more inclined to listen. For one thing, the stories are persistent and often come from respectable observers. For another, when you're by yourself in the middle of nowhere, things happen that are hard to explain. For instance, a few years back on a very remote solo kayak trip in the lower Yukon, I swear I heard rocks tossed in my direction by unseen hands or whatever. Big rocks. It was very weird and a little scary. Not particularly on target, assuming that they were trying to hit me. A close inspection of the presumed point of origin showed no evidence of anything. There was nowhere for anything bigger than a squirrel to hide. I can't say it was an Inserac, but neither can I absolutely refute what it was suggested to be. The epic descriptions of little people resemble those in, a wide, in widespread stories shared by many cultures around the world. A conference on such creatures is held every year in Twisp, Washington. I would like to check that out. Oh, for sure. Any of our hollow cult in Washington, specifically Twisp. If this thing, I know this was this blog was posted in 2008. If anything like that still exists and people go to it, hit us up. 
though accounts of sightings and inexplicable events attributed to the Insurac were are common mostly in western Alaska, they seldom had received widespread circulation outside of that area. But as we all know what the internet does, it changed things. I called Nick Andrew Jr. and Marshall, whose email started the latest excitement. He intended it to be a private message to a family member, he said, and was a little disconcerned that I had forwarded it so far and wide. He confirmed the details, however, and gave me permission to use his name, requesting that I keep the other names out of print. Andrew was on a snowmobile hunting birds on the evening of May 7th, some distance out of town. Three hours away if you had to walk it, he estimated. Preparing to return home, he decided to check a different location on a hunch. Stopping to look, I saw a small boy alone in the middle of the marsh, he said. He recognized the child as a boy from the village. I asked him where his dad or hunting partners were. I grilled him with questions as of who he was with and if he was alone. He was scared and he'd clearly been crying. All his answers were, I don't know, I don't know. He described the boy as disoriented, dazed, confused, and scared, with no concept of time. He didn't appear to be tired, nor was he hungry or thirsty. But the lad was lucky, it seems. He was found in a spot frequented by large tundra brown bears. Andrew took the boy home, noting that there were no footprints in the spring snow to indicate that anyone had walked into the area, or out of the area. He found that quite puzzling. He encountered at least 10 other snow machiners in the neighborhood, none of who had seen the boy. After getting the boy back to the village, he left his VHS radio on overnight in case some other hunter, report, hunter reported a missing child, but no one had. It wasn't until the next day that the story started emerging that he had what you'd call an out-of-ordinary an, an out experience, he told me. He had some missing time, just like people who had been reported abducted by UFOs. The boy said he was brought into... Pilcher Mountain, a site often associated with the Inserat in encounters. There he was questioned and saw other little beings. He made contact with a little girl that was abducted over 40 years ago, Andrew said. She told him who she was and that she needed help. After that, the Irsenrat decided to release the boy, and that's when he came to, I guess, a few minutes before I found him. Andrew maintained a calm perspective about the experience. Is this kid telling the truth, he said, leaving the answer kind of open-minded. Responses to the email by the time it was forwarded to me treated the news with gravity. It says, ladies, please share this with your husbands and partners, one forwarder said. Please tell your children about the Irson the racks and their deceptiveness, said another. Thank God this little boy was found alive. So, I had heard somebody talk about the little people that can open up essentially mountain faces and pull people into them before. It reminds me of the Fae. Yeah. Yeah. And like Because it's it's same it's almost the same MO across different uh cultures, right? You have these little people that are mischievous. Sometimes they're assholes. Uh some of them are rumored to take young children. I mean that that's that's straight up Faylor lore. And like how messed up is it that while he was pulled into the mountain, he met another little girl who went missing 40 years ago. So I'm assuming she had not aged. Correct. And that he was talking to her directly. I wish I looked and I could not find it that the name of the little girl could have been. Published. reported to yeah. see if she had actually went missing 
but I could not find it. Well, it's kind of it's kind of weird because in next week's episode we hit a dimensional um theory. But it just made me think with the missing time and stuff like that. And like in this little boy's case, how he kind of appeared out in the middle of nowhere and nobody's seen him go by and this, that, and the other. No footprints. Um, and, and the same thing could be said for UFO abductions as well. But like it totally makes sense the more you sit and think about it. What if when these creatures, they're, they're able to traverse dimensions, right? And say say they're capable of taking us into another dimension. But it would almost be, like the way I'm picturing it in my brain, because this is the way my, my brain, it's just easier for me to accept, would be you have our reality, then you have the upside down, which is parallel to our reality. It's just a, it's a different dimension. And we can cross from ours into theirs and move, traverse along, uh, you know, we'll walk down the street. However, if we jump back into our reality, we made that distance without crossing that distance in our reality, right? So that would X out the the footprints for this little boy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I like that. the big, big one here, I, like that. I, like I that. never thought about this before until now. It would also explain missing time. Because how many times have we heard time works differently yep. in different dimensions? Yep. So that could 100, that 100%, 100% explain missing time. I was thinking the same thing when you were using your hands to explain it, how when we cross over into that dimension, maybe we are passing time in that dimension, but we're not passing time in right. ours. Right. The time, the, yeah, the time yeah. would be different, yeah. in, or it could be or t- or slower. extremely slower. Yeah. Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I've never, never thought about that before, but it like makes it. so much fucking sense. I like it. I like it. Because like I said, in my next week's episode, the dimension thing comes up again. That's, I uh, mean, it's just, and it, it, it screams missing 411. Oh, like it dude, Absolutely. It. If one thing I took away from Politis and all of his research and everything that he put together was when he said it was almost like a claw machine was picking people up, taking them out of this world, and then placing them back. Right. And that's essentially exactly what this is. But it it also, like, it leads credence to the fact that this has been happening for a long fucking time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. If there's folklore behind it. And there's not, and and that's the thing, like I said earlier, is it's not just, it's not just isolated to Alaska. Exactly. Right? You have, you have it over everywhere. I mean, there's, there's literally folklore everywhere. Mountains Uh, eating people. Right. And then you, you have, uh, the Fae, but you, you'll also have different names across the board, you know? Yeah. The, the leprechaun, the, uh. Like the in the oh, I forget what he called it over there in Iceland or whatever. Josh Gates, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I'm talking yeah. about. Uh, but they they have different names across the board, and it's just I don't know, man. Like you said, it leads a lot more credence because it just pops everywhere. It's not just one isolated location. Yeah, it's. Uh, I read that and I'm like, man. I had since we're at an hour, I'm going to stop there. But I had two. I had a ghost ship one, which was kind of weird, but then I had this one. I'm like, man, this one's a banger. This so, one, that one was a good one. Yes, yeah. I loved it. Yeah. So that's uh, 
that's going to be it for the 40 and 50 on Alaska. Again, I know I didn't touch on everything. Uh, I just wanted to pick some some strange ones, throw some UFO stories, some different shit in there. So uh, there are some big Alaskan stories that we'll probably dive into as a whole, like a whole episode on their own. I am currently trying to look up state's alphabetical order so I can tell you what the next one is. So as soon as my phone works here. Sorry, I'm not Alabama. We did Alabama first. So Alaska, Arizona, Arizona is on deck for the next 40 and 50. Oh, that's I don't so know. weird. Talk about Perfect timing, huh? Well, my next week's episode also plays into a town I literally drove through. Hell yeah. Synchronicities about. Yeah, it's so it's so awesome. But anyway, I do apologize if I butchered the names, which I know I did. It's okay. And I uh, uh, hope everybody enjoyed this part two. The return. The, 40, the return of the 40 and 50. So, you know the deal. Check us out at all social media, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, Discord, Reddit, TikTok. Come and hang out with us. Be part of the Holocult. Feels great to be behind the stick again. For sure. Happy to hang out with you guys. Until next time, stay safe, stay weird. And if you see an otter next to a river and it's crying at you like a baby, piss on it. At Highland, we're all about celebrating little wins and little ways to innovate digital processes. There's no customer pain point too small for us to help with. Maybe that's why more than half of the Fortune 100 looks to Highland to connect their content and data, improve processes, and turn little efficiencies into big wins for their customers and clients. Highland, intelligent content solutions for innovators everywhere at highland.com.